So I want to take you back in time for a minute. It's pretend it's Christmas 1988-ish, right? Christmas 1980. Dad got more laughs than I thought. So we're starting off well already. So here's the thing. Christmas 1988, Star Wars Return of the Jedi is pretty much the coolest movie at that point. It, it, who here was it alive at that time? Yes, yeah, Star Wars Return of the Jedi, pretty cool, right? So it's Christmas 1988, and 10-year-old Dan is is thinking about what do I want for Christmas? And at the top of my Christmas list is this figure from Star Wars. And, and I don't know that he had a name in the movie, but he was the coolest thing to me. Uh, underneath Jabba the Hutt's big throne, you remember the big, I don't know, the big area where he was. Remember he had that like area of judgment that would open up and then people would fall into it. And there was this big monster underneath that would eat those guys. It was totally terrifying. This huge brown monster that was really scary. It was called the Rancor Monster. So the Rancor Monster is what I wanted. There was a little figure of it made by Kenner who somehow got the licensing for all the Star Wars movie toys, which was pretty great. And I saw that in the store and I was like, I've got to have that. That is at the top of my list. I hoped for it, but I wasn't expecting it. So Christmas Eve, we open our presents on Christmas Eves um, because we love Jesus. And um, well, uh, Christmas Eve, I, I knew I saw that there was this package underneath the tree that looked about the right size to be the Rancor monster. I was excited about it. And when it was my turn to open presents, I open it up. And what do I see? The little Star Wars logo up at the top. This is the Rancor monster, baby. And I open it up. Sure enough, Rancor Monster. So I'm totally excited. I go do a celebratory lap. I try not to run back with the scissors as I'm going to, to cut open the, the, the box. And I'm so excited here. I open up the box. And inside it are three dictionaries. And I was totally confused. I, I had no idea what this was. And my little 10-year-old brain tried to figure this out like... What what happened here? And I thought of several scenarios. I thought like, well, maybe the people out at Kenner, the nice folks out at Kenner are like, you know what kids need more than toys these days is they need knowledge. And so let's give them a dictionary. And though they won't thank me now, they'll thank me later. And I was seriously kind of thinking that. Uh, and then I and I thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe they ran out of toys. Maybe everybody else likes the Rancor Monster because it's so cool. And they were just like, well, we want to sell units, but we don't have enough units to actually sell. So here's a box and some dictionaries. Good luck. I didn't know what to make of this. So I, I open it up and I'm just sitting there thinking. And I, I seriously think my parents let me like live in that weird place for like five minutes or something it seemed like an hour and my dad came out of his room with the rancor monster the big scary thing which is pretty cool (laughs) i want to talk to you this morning about expectations versus reality sometimes when expectations and reality bump into each other we're disappointed Right. Like you probably came here expecting to hear a great message today, but instead you got me. Um, Sometimes expectations, though, can be exceeded by the reality. So have you ever had that happen where you you're expecting this, but things just go so much better than that. It's just so great. 
And sometimes our expectations and reality are actually on two completely different pages. This morning, as we do every morning, we're talking about Jesus. As we prepare for Christmas, we consider the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Ever since the serpent in the Garden of Eden uh, deceived Adam and Eve, God had promised a deliverer who would finally crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent would be at war with humanity, especially that deliverer who would come through Eve. And the whole of the Old Testament is the preparation for the coming of this Messiah. Over and over again, when mankind comes up against the weight of falling prey to the lie of the serpent, God makes a way for his people, and he points forward to a future deliverer, the Messiah. So what did Israel expect of the Messiah? Well, first, I think it's it's good that we clarify what does Messiah mean. Messiah means anointed one. And you've probably heard us before. You've, I'm sure you've heard it before. We say Jesus Christ, right? Christ is the Greek translation of of the anointed one, Messiah. So they're the same thing. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Christ wasn't his last name. It was, you know, um, it's his title, really. And what the Jews expected of this Messiah, this promised one in their Old Testament, was that there would be one who would give sight to the blind, one who would give hearing to the deaf, he would give mobility for the lame, and he would give speech to the mute. He would come through the royal line of one of Israel's sons. Israel had these 12 sons, right? And one of those tribes was Judah. And it was prophesied that he would come through the line of Judah. And one of the descendants of Judah was actually King David. One of the big pop... I'm sure you've heard of David, like David and Goliath, David. So it was expected that the Messiah would come through this line. It was prophesied that he would come through this line. And so the expectation was he would be a descendant of King David. And the expectation in that time was that the Messiah would cast off that which was enslaving God's people. That's a lot of expectation. So I want to ask you, what is your expectation as you think about the Messiah? Who do you think he is? Or who do you think he was? I want us to look at a passage from the book of Matthew that shows the expectation and re, where the expectation and the reality for the Messiah diverged. The expectation is understandable, but the reality is staggering and awesome. The Gospel of Matthew sets out to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is that promised Messiah. If you'll open up in your Bible, if you've got one there, you can just go ahead and open it up. Or if you got it in an app on your phone, go ahead and open it up here. We're just kind of cruising through the first couple of chapters here. Matthew's story begins with the genealogy of Jesus. This was showing that he was, uh, he was from the right line to be that promised ruler. Then Matthew tells us about the miracle of Mary being found with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, who's Mary's fiancé, and the man who raised him, was told to call him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Then Matthew begins showing how uh, a series of how these prophecies, um, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies that were written way before his coming. So, so far in the book of Matthew, Expectation and reality are lining up. 
Matthew describes the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the city that the prophesied ruler would come from. And then he describes how some wise men came from the east to pay homage to this new ruler. They've read all the prophecies and they see him being, they see all these prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. Expectation and reality are still lined up. Everything is going according to plan. But then the story gets a little bit hairy. As Herod who was the ruler of Judea, attempts to kill Jesus. He killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or under. He was threatened by this promised ruler or Messiah who would be coming. So an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to go to Egypt. Matthew ties this to a prophecy that God's son would come out of Egypt. So, There's a lot happening here in Matthew, uh, and and Matthew describes the long-awaited king. And as we come to the end of this record, this is not a typical Christmas passage, so I hope your expectation wasn't that you were going to hear that, because this is going to be just a little bit different. So we're going to read here Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 21 here. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. God is leading Joseph through dreams and angels. The threat of Herod killing the children, that's past. Joseph and Mary being obedient to the Lord, they follow God's leading. And and remember, this is at a time when people walked everywhere they went. They didn't fly, they didn't drive, they walked. So when they go down to Egypt, this is like 300 miles. And then they walk back 350 miles. Yeah, it would take a couple of dreams and angels to tell me to do that as well. Um, But so far, the expectation is that The Messiah would live a life of blessing, the life the Israelites longed for. But the reality was that the Messiah was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with our grief. And keep going through the passage here. But when he, that's Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So a little bit of history here, okay? Stick with me, please. Everybody doing okay so far? Okay. Um, Herod was a powerful leader, and he was paranoid about losing his power, which is why he killed all the male children uh, in order to snuff out this Messiah. Well, he died, obviously, and Archelaus was his son. And he was also bad news for the Jews. When Archelaus inherited the throne from his father Herod, there was this dispute that had been ongoing in the Jewish community there. And after some back and forth, there was kind of like a protest and some back and forth. And Archelaus said, you know what? I'm done. I'm ending this protest. And he went in and he slaughtered 3,000 Jews in the temple. That's a lot of people. 3,000 people just killed because the ruler insecure, just thought, you know what? I want to be done with this argument. I'm done. And you're done too. So Joseph hears about that. Joseph and Mary hear about that. They're all the way down in Egypt. But at this time, there's a lot of people fleeing that area, that that, uh, area near Bethlehem, the Judea. They're fleeing there. They're going down to Egypt because that seems to be the nearest safe place. And you can imagine as word is traveling, what all has happened. And so the angel says, hey, Herod's dead. It's safe to go back now. And Joseph is like, 
Really? Is it really safe though? Judea is the southern part of Israel. We're going to have to do a little bit of geography here. And I didn't put a map up and I was trying to be just like just a text only guy. But, um, so the map uh, would show that Judea is in the southern part of Israel where Bethlehem and Jerusalem are. It's where Jesus was born down in, in the southern part there. And so when when they come up from Egypt, they just want to go up to that area, Bethlehem, right? Uh, but they heard that there's a bad guy. So the district of Galilee is actually way up here. So there's in between Judea and the district of Galilee is this big area, and you've probably heard of it, called Samaria. Kind of the undesirable place, right? And so it's like you got to go through all of that to get to uh, to get to Galilee. The expectation is that the Messiah would be safely kept from trouble. Do you remember when Satan was tempting Jesus? He uh, tempted him to throw himself off of the temple because angels would protect him. That's part of the expectation that the Messiah would be kept, kept safe from trouble. But the reality is this. The Messiah was born into a troubled and dangerous time. He was born in a time of incredible instability and life was fragile. He entered into that fragile life. So we go on verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what would, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, Luke actually tells us in, in Luke's account of the birth of Christ, he tells us that Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth. Um, and so this is, Nazareth is where Mary got miraculously pregnant. So her reputation before becoming pregnant, before she was married, it would have been great. But here Mary gets pregnant in her, in her hometown and Nazareth is probably a small town of fewer than a thousand. And so in this very small town, Mary gets miraculously pregnant and says, this is of the Holy Spirit. You can imagine what people thought of her, right? And remember, this is in a time when infidelity was a really big deal. This had life-changing consequences. If it was shown that you're, you've been unfaithful and, and Mary, unmarried, gets pregnant, I mean, what does that mean? Joseph would have had a similar experience. His reputation would be tarnished significantly in Nazareth. As a carpenter, his livelihood depended on people being able to trust him. When he says, it's going to go like this, it's going to cost this much, they go, really? You, you know, your fiance, come on, we know you got a history here. So now we see why Joseph and Mary wanted to go back to Bethlehem instead of going all the way back up to their hometown of Nazareth. I mean, who wants to bring up a child in a place where you've got so much baggage? Much less the Messiah, the ruler, the the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. I mean, he doesn't need all of this baggage. But in addition to Joseph and Mary's baggage with the town of Nazareth, it really didn't have a lot going for it. Nazareth was a Jewish and Gentile mixed population. It was looked down on by the religious Jews, by the people who were kind of the big muckety-mucks, the people who were, you know, the, the strong Hebrew Jews. They really looked down on Nazareth and all of that northern area. 
It was on the road to Sephoris, and so there was a lot of people who were going through. There was a big town nearby. It was off this trade route, which, you know, in a time when people walked a lot. You can imagine a lot of, like, travelers. People were just passing through, just kind of stopping by. And when you're just stopping through a town and you have no accountability with anybody in that town, nobody knows you, it's probably not a really good, safe place. You know what I'm talking about? It also had no historic significance or prophetic expectation. But there's something that's really interesting here, and we're going to go Bible nerd for just a minute. Will you indulge me with this? But we're going to see something that's super important about expectation versus reality. We've got this pattern of Matthew giving a detail of the coming Messiah, often given with a geographical location. And here he says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The problem is, there's no prophecy in the Old Testament that says that Jesus, or that the Messiah, would be a Nazarene. Like, so far, Matthew's batting a thousand. He's like, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled. And you can go back and look up the quote. And in here he says... That he would be called a Nazarene, like the prophet said. And you look in your notes and you're like, what? They never said that. Look up Nazareth. It's not in the Old Testament. Compounding this is that Nazareth wasn't even a city at the time when the prophets went silent. So what is Matthew driving at here? There's several options and some of them are plausible. But part of what makes this section of Matthew odd is his attention to geography. He specifically identifies prophecies that are geographical in nature. Remember, if you look back in earlier in Matthew, he talks about Bethlehem. He talks about out of Egypt. He talks about Ramah. So the answer's got to have something to do with Nazareth at a place, even though it wasn't even a place when these prophets were silent. I believe that the key to understanding this is what Matthew had in mind when he said he would be called a Nazarene. We're familiar with the term Jesus of Nazareth. It makes sense to us. We've heard it a thousand times. But Nazarene was a derogatory racial slur in the time of Jesus. It's someone whose life essentially doesn't matter. Oh, some Nazarene. You, you can tell it uh, when, when uh, Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus, he says, hey, he's from, he's from Nazareth. And he literally says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, what? Like, that was the expectation. And Jesus would be called this. The promised Messiah would be known by a demeaning title. Nazarene. Now what's interesting is the prophets spoke about two locational origins of the Messiah. On the one hand, it was clear that he would be born in Bethlehem. And actually Miguel read that this morning. On the other hand, there's this parallel stream here. And we're still in Bible, mer- uh, Bible nerd mode. So if, if you've got to downshift a little bit, give you a second. So on the one hand, it's clear he'll be from Bethlehem. On the other hand, there's this the parallel prophecies uh, in, I, in Isaiah and Zechariah that seems to suggest that the Messiah would come from obscurity. Like they wouldn't really know where he's from. In fact, it's stated, somebody says it in John 7, 27, says, but when the Messiah is going to come, nobody's going to know where he is, where he's from. Right. That was kind of one of the sentiments. So it's like, well, is he going to be from Bethlehem or is he going to be from 
we don't know where. How could his origin be simultaneously Bethlehem and kind of who knows where? Rather than a contradiction in prophecy, this is an origin story that would be impossible for Jesus to fake. He'd be born in Bethlehem. When your mom is pregnant with you, how much say do you have where you're going to be born? Probably not any, right? Are we still tracking? Are you awake here? We get, okay. So I know, I know we went Bible nerd for a minute, but like, okay. So yeah, you had no control over where you'd be born. Then he escapes to Egypt to go fulfill more prophecy, right? So when you're like an infant, how much say do you have in where your parents moved to, right? When I was a kid, we moved from Iowa to Salem, Oregon, when I was like, Three months old, and I commonly joke as because I couldn't find a job in uh, in Des Moines. We had to come out to Oregon. But I mean, in reality, we had no say in that, right? So Jesus really has no say in where his parents move. But he's fulfilling prophecy. But then he goes back and he's raised in Nazareth, an obscure place. There's so much movement here. The expectation at the time of Jesus could have been he will be Jesus from. Bethlehem. That would be so much cleaner. It's the city of David. He would be considered kind of like a, a son of David and, and it'd be an easy ascent to the throne. People would have been more able to clearly identify Jesus as coming from Bethlehem if he was also raised in Bethlehem. Or Jesus could have also been from Jerusalem. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus from Jerusalem? Remember when he was a boy, he wowed the teachers in the temple. And can you imagine how easy it would have been for Jesus to constantly be in the public light for everybody to see how smart he was, how wise he was, how perfect he was. And it would have been so easy if he just stayed in Jerusalem. It'd be a clear line and everybody would say, hey, it's the Messiah. And that would kind of fit in with the public expectation at the time that when the Messiah would come, it'd be like, here I am. It's me. Look. But instead, it's he'd be called a Nazarene. Here is where the reality is staggering. According to the Bible, Jesus is the Son of God who is deserving of all glory, all honor, and all praise. All things exist through him and for him. He's the judge of all. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So God sent his Son into the world that the world might be saved through him. But when he sent his Son, he didn't just come and live as a God among men. He lived as a servant. And spent most of his life in obscurity. He was humble. He was born into a troubled time with political and social upheaval. He was born to a family that had a complicated history. And he was raised where everybody knew that history. Jesus lost his earthly father. He knew what it was like. To lose someone close to you. 
He grew up in a town that even apart from all his family history there, everybody looked down on it. And he would wear the title Jesus of of Nazareth for all of his public life and beyond. See, Jesus knows our struggles. He's been there. He didn't have a sanitized life. He never sinned, but he lived in a world of sin and brokenness. And he experienced the fullness of that brokenness. And though this Messiah didn't line up with the expectations of the people around him in his time, it was always God's plan that he would be despised and rejected. 700 years before Jesus came, and even if you don't believe that the scriptures are inspired by God, uh, copies of this particular part have been found that have, are demonstrably at least 100 to 300 years before Jesus came. The prophet Isaiah said this. Just listen to this. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is talking about the Messiah who had come. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a young, like a root out of dry ground. Like where did that come from? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. Ah, that's the Messiah. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. It's the one that the universe is singing to now. And for all of eternity, the song will be worthy is that one. His plan from the get-go was that he would come and be despised and rejected and that we would esteem him not. I uh, Occasionally, after we get all the kids to bed, I, Amy and I will sit down and indulge in an HGTV show. I don't know how many of you guys watch these like Property Brothers or the... I don't remember what the one... Um, in Waco, Texas. But anyway, those guys too. Uh, and it's, it's a really cool thing. You know, these, you see these people co- show up to a property and it's like all dilapidated. Actually, my buddy David's kind of doing this right now. Um, you, you, you see this property, it's all messed up and they're like, yeah, we're going to totally fix this thing up. Right. And so they go and this, and the stars show up. And I, I love like after a commercial break, you come up on somebody, uh, who's like all beautiful and he's like holding a stud. I mean, like a, lumber stuff and and he's there and he's like driving a nail and he's like well actually uh this is a supportive beam and what we found is that the rot because this wood was uh, actually produced in 1927 which was a really bad year for fur anyway so um uh this this year we're gonna have to go ahead and gut this and we're gonna ha- and then he'll use a bunch of terms that you you know that like 15 minutes before he was looking up on wikipedia because we all know what the reality is of those hgtv shows right like there's some beautiful person that's all got all the makeup and all that stuff and they go up and they're they're putting the nail in they're like see this yeah this is great and then, and then when the director says cut they're like all right you know John go back and finish that because right before they arrived there was some crew that was doing all the work i mean we we understand that this is how it works right 
that's not how Jesus came here. He didn't come here when the lights came on. He, when he joined the crew, everybody just thought he was just one of the crew. There was nothing that drew us to him. Uh, one of my favorite books was written by my brother-in-law, Peter Mead. Uh, and it's actually a, a Christmas book. It's um, called Please to Dwell. And I love this quote here. Emmanuel, God with us, not just near us in some nice palace somewhere, but with us, like in Nazareth with us. Jesus of nowhere, Galilee. He came to be with us so that he could be for us. And he's forever with us, for he still carries the lowliest of labels. It was all part of God's plan that he should be called a Nazarene. This humility is shocking. It's not what the Jews were expecting for a Messiah, but it is the reality of who our God is. Y'all, our God is humble. The expectation the Messiah will be like they believed God was, a mighty conqueror. Reality. The Messiah is how God is. Humble and meek. This whole message is summed up so beautifully in this passage from Hebrews chapter 2. I'd love it if we could just read it. I, uh, is it too small? The font looks really cool on my laptop, but uh, it's a little small here. So I'll just read it for you. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son didn't come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. In other words, people who are like Abraham, they trust God, they believe God. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. His, get this, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Expectation, the Messiah would save his people from their worldly overlords. Reality, the Messiah saves his people from their sin that has always separated us from God. We're like a Christmas tree that's been cut down. We might like, we might look nice and green for a little while, but separated from our source of life, we're going to die. Sin is like that saw that separates us from God. And the only way we can have life is through believing in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. See, Jesus fulfilled the law where we disobeyed the law. He took on the death that our sins deserve when he was hung up on that cross. And he was raised again to show that there is hope and life in his name. So this Christmas, I would ask you the question, what are you expecting? What is your Messiah? Where is your hope? 
The Jews were hoping for a Messiah to cast off their Roman overlords. The best that they could imagine is that they would be freed so that they could go back to worshiping the Lord without all that Roman interference, keeping the law and making their sacrifices. But they missed that all the laws that they were keeping and all the animals that they were sacrificing were pointing forward to the promised serpent crusher, the one who would come to fulfill the law and be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. When you consider Jesus this Christmas, who do you see? Some see a nice teacher who said and did nice things to help us be a little nicer, like a self-help guru. Jesus is no self-help guru. The story of the Bible is not that sin makes you bad. It's that sin makes you dead. And Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Christmas trees don't need chemical treatment to stay green longer. They need to be reconnected with their source of life. Does your expectation of Jesus the Messiah line up with the reality that the lowly Jesus of Nazareth will one day return as king and judge the world? Because he is coming. And you're going to see him one day. Every one of us is going to see Jesus one day. No more wondering what he looks like. No more wondering, am I taller than Jesus was? No more wondering any of those things. Scripture is clear. We're going to see Jesus one day. And we're either going to face him as savior or judge. But there's nothing in between. He's either your savior or your judge. And today you can have your expectation line up with the reality of who Jesus of Nazareth truly is. He's God's son who is sent for you. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, if maybe this is all brand new to you, or maybe you've heard this a thousand times, but you know that you have never believed for yourself. Maybe your parents told you. Maybe you think I'm going to kind of be in by proxy, like I kind of go to church sometimes, and so I'm just kind of in. But you're not going to face Jesus with your family. You're not going to face him with your parents. You're going to stand before him yourself. And you will either see in him Jesus, the judge. So many of those expectations that the Jews had of Jesus were because they didn't see that he would come to suffer first. But make no mistake, Jesus, while humble, is still the Lion of Judah. And he is not someone that you want opposing you. He is coming back to judge. And right now, right now, we have an opportunity to see him, rather than as judge, to see him as our Savior Will you see Jesus for who he is? If you've got questions about that, if you don't know where you sit, I would love to talk to you about that. If you don't like me because I'm a Star Wars guy or because of whatever, totally understand it. But please talk to somebody here today before you leave. Do not enter into eternity without seeing Jesus for who he really is. Let's pray. Lord. What an awesome thing that we get to celebrate 
Not just the, the, the high and lifted up one, although you are that, but also the one who is high and lifted up and who came down to the lowest place. Who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held onto like, like tight, tightly held, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that he has been raised by the Father and that every eye will see him, every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, help us to see him for who he is. Help us to enjoy his beauty, his humility, his love. And I pray that we would stand rightly before Jesus when we finally see him face to face. Amen.